welcome to another episode of the Alan Smithy Podcast. I am here as always with my good friends, Katie Henson and Michael Kamas, and we are at the end of the year. And as all great podcasts, websites, blogs, shows, you name it has, we've got to talk about and have a year-end wrap-up. So this is what we're doing there. Katie, welcome. Uh, uh, congratulations for making it through another year. Oh, my goodness. And what a year it's been. I think ever since 2020, it, you always think, hey, next year is going to be normal. <laughs> There's no normalcy anymore. Not The at new all. normal. What about you, Michael? Uh, you've also made it to the end of the year. I've made it to the end of the year. I'm a little wounded. It's been a crazy year for tech, been a crazy year in my professional life. Uh, but yes, I am here. And thank you very much for helping to make that happen. I mean, yeah, I must Michael. say, it's look, it's been a really rough year for a lot of folks in our industry. Um, it, so I will just call that out and acknowledge that yep. this has been an absolute shitter <laughs> for well, a lot Michael, of folks. Michael moved, you were in a full-time gig, and let's just briefly talk about that. And then you moved out of that full-time gig. So that is a big personal shift for anybody. And you, you know, right here in front of us. Well, as, as we'll talk about, you know, consolidation in our industry, and, and I'm uh, a victim of that as well. You know, I went from uh, Bebop last year for several years and then went to Shift Media, which was then merged with EditShare. So kind of consolidation of technologies. And, and I find myself back looking for another challenge again. And as Katie said, it's not unique. This whole year, we've seen consolidation. And some of the things we'll talk about today actually involve the concept of consolidation in our industry. Uh, so now there's a few months removed from sort of moving on. Like, how do you, you know, do you look back on the, you know, you had a good time spent there or you're like, you know, it was a blessing in days. Um, that you've moved on or like, how do you feel about this as the, as the year ends? Uh, it was a good challenge and there was much more challenge involved that I thought, uh, or that I didn't know about, uh, when I started there, I'm happy with the, with the progress I was able to make there. It may not look like a lot, but there was a lot of forward progress made in a shorter amount of time than, than what historically had happened with the company. I think it was very good. Our parting of the ways was very amicable. Uh, I still, in fact, when I hear good tech tidbits, I'll, you know, uh, send them a message just to be like, hey, I know at one point this, you, do, you know, we were working on X, Y, and Z. You may want to check out ABC just because I care about the people there and I care about the company. But it's good because I learned enough that now I can take that somewhere else. I will say, as I think the guru of what's actually going on, I, I think, I don't know really anyone else in my circle has who has their finger on the pulse of technology the way you do, Michael. And so I, would love to hear your thoughts around probably the, the biggest news of the year for you. Like, I think it's probably AI, right? Like, like what, 2023 was the year of generative AI, do you think? It, without without a doubt, I mean, it's bigger than the Pokemon craze a couple of years ago. I mean, this, <laughs> this has been in the forefront of every discussion, every WhatsApp call I have or video conferences. Do you hear about this AI tool, this AI tool? What I find amazing is that if you take a step back, AI has only really been at the forefront of the news for, for the past 15 months, maybe a little over a year. Incredibly and in that short. time, we've seen it start from a, hey, just give this, uh, try this around online to companies being created based on open AIs, APIs, and then companies 
going out of business because OpenAI then released tools that would do this for free or for pennies on the dollar. I mean, we've seen uh, shakeups of the board with with Sam Altman. We've seen new editions of ChatGPT and ChatGPT4. We've seen the hugging face explode with open source models and folks creating their own AI for their own purposes. And we're seeing generative AI, right? The text to image, text to video, and then uh, text to speech and, and cloning. This year has skyrocketed technology to a point that I haven't seen, mm-hmm. uh, I think, in my entire career. I've never seen this much advancement in tech compressed in such a small amount of time with my time on Earth here. Yeah, look, I will certainly say for, for me, I think we're finally seeing some real disruption in our industry and, and technology in general, um, which is great because I don't think we've any, seen anything quite like it, certainly since the move to digital. It's certainly very interesting. You know, I started playing around with this stuff probably 2017, 2018, and I was so excited about what it could potentially do. I had no concept of where we'd be today, though. At that time, it was all focused on on text. And obviously, as the tech optimist that I am, I was so excited about some of the amazing things it could do to help people and and to make society more equal, which it still has that that potential to do. And I think there's a lot of people who are tech pessimists who look at all the nasty things that it could be. I mean, any technology is neither good nor bad on its own. It's all about what we do with it. And uh, we will do great things we will do terrible things. But either way, I think we're never going to go back. Katie, what's what was your line about people and tech and society and tech? We always overestimate the technology and underestimate society. That, I'll say, I've said it before and I'll say it again. That needs to be on a T-shirt. <laughs> a day. lot of the AI discussions I listen to are very doomy and gloomy. Is that because I'm listening to the wrong things or is that just human nature when anything potentially as disruptive as AI rolls Oh, because along. you get far more clicks with that. Well, because that's true it really, too, yes. you know, really, I think that's the truth. And, and I also think that a lot of the exciting stuff is not as sexy <laughs> as AI is going to take over the world. You know, Dr. Fei-Fei Li is someone that I really do trust and follow a lot in terms of this stuff. She's the godmother of modern AI. And every time she's asked the question of what about all the problems that AI is going to cause, she says, she always says, no, we need to look at the real problems, the real problems that we have today. And many of them AI can solve. You know, we shouldn't be thinking about, you know, AI taking over the world, we should be thinking about climate change and we should be thinking about inequality and and disease and hunger. So I think it's you know really, really important that we think about those things. And often I think the doomsday of it all just is a very good distraction from yeah. the reality of of really what we should be facing and thinking about. But there's just my little uh, my little happiness coming out. But you know, well, I wonder. Uh, you know, the idea that AI could help solve some society's most vexing problems and right. not just let me animate some kind of silly you know animal in a space they would never ever be in. Like that seems like what I, AI needs to do. It's fine for it to be recreational. It's fine for it to generate some fun stuff. But I do hope that that is indeed the case, that it, it gets beyond just, you know, generative art, you know, helping me, tr- you know, uh, transcribe stuff, which is great in its own right. But I, I do look forward to that sort of next generation of, you know, what can AI really do for us? Right. 
I will admit this though, and you guys might help me with this. I've wanted to get into AI a lot more than I have this year. When the day ends and I'm staring at a computer screen, I would often go home and bring up some of these Twitter lists or Instagram lists where you see like, here's the 20 greatest AI things you need to be playing with now. And I would start to play for a few minutes and then I would, perhaps I just didn't want to stare at the screen anymore. Perhaps I'm just an old fart. I would just kind of go away and do something else. Where should I, someone who, where should I begin if I said, you know what, 2024 is going to be the year of me learning AI? Where do I start? Well, that's a a great question. Uh, I actually, and let me take a step back. Katie, you mentioned you've been working uh, with AI for for uh, several years, 2017, 2018. And there's the concept of applied AI, right? How How is AI a product and how can I use it? And then there's how do you make AI? How do you build AI? What are the concepts and fundamentals? And there are certainly collegiate courses on that, but uh, Google, Google actually has Google courses on AI, on the terminology, how LLMs are, are built. Also, deeplearning.ai is very cool. Uh, and they have some guided courseware on the underpinnings of AI. And a lot of it, uh, you know, goes to machine learning, how the, the arithmetic is applied, et cetera. And that allows you kind of to give you a peek under the hood. So I'd recommend that if you are more in the applied AI space, which is where I tend to play a bit more. Matt Wolf, I think he runs futuretools.io. That's pretty cool. Granted, he is not in our industry. So when he says this makes video editing, you know, uh, needing a video editor irrelevant, <laughs> you, you, you don't kind of get it. But to see all these tools and to see him run through them and test them and put them through a, some tests is kind of good to see what's out there. I would also say that Runway's blog is really good. You know how everybody always thought that like Netflix's tech blog? Amazing, right? Mm -hmm. um, for the generative AI stuff in our industry, if you're looking for that sort of really, you know, simply put explanation of what they're doing, what they're up to, what they're working on, Runway ML, their blog is actually really great. They talk about the stuff they're working on, how it works, their approaches, why this worked, why this didn't. So I always actually find that quite a quite a handy one. And what an amazing, th that is the one AI sort of thing out there that I continue to go back to and play with is Runway, because I feel like they're putting lots of tools in our space into one, literally one login. And I'm really enjoying um, what they're doing. And and the thought of some of those things being integrated into the, you know, the Premiere, the Resolve, the Avid platforms that we're in hours upon in every year, I'm that gets me excited about the future. I don't think it's going to take my job. I think it's going to supplement my job and help me do things that I can't do now. You know, even just not just do them better, but just do things I don't do now, which is I, great. I did want to throw something out there because I'm always looking to learn more and not just, you know, what can I grok from, you know, this PDF, but the, you know, underpinnings. And I actually reached out to some people who recently this year took courses at like, I guess I could say like MIT, I think uh, JPL as well, some different places where these, where they offer AI courses. Here it is, six months, $10,000. And actually a lot of them are um, out of date. And not that good. I was blown away wow. by the amount of people who said, I went to this esteemed collegiate or, or uh, secondary education, and they have a six-month course to get through AI, and you learn a little bit of Python, you learn this, learn that, and you find out it's been outsourced 
to to some someone else who's not affiliated with the college doing courses that have concepts that are, you know, years and years and decades old. And one person I'm speaking about in particular said they learned more from the uh, deep learning.ai and Google courses than they did wow. this $10,000 course. So is that I, is that the the, the school not doing due diligence or is it just changing that fast that there's a there's a there's a red tape at a college you have to go through to teach anything god knows i stopped teaching the latter i think you know because honestly, it was a pain probably is the latter i think like you say i mean there's so much red tape to get a course approved this is moving so fast i think the best thing you can do is go over the fundamentals and help people understand how this thing works the difference between the different kinds of ai but i mean anybody's going to be going uphill backwards because it's really really like my goodness you know yeah. you know what i find really interesting is that 6 months ago the concept was you know what i have to learn how to be a fantastic prompt engineer that's going to be a job description and now 6 months later AI is working to the point where you don't need to be a prompt engineer because it's getting better at understanding what you're asking. Yeah. So it, that that's oh, how quickly things are changing in terms of what your curricula is going to be. It's funny talking about AI in a university setting because, you know, there's been prevailing winds over the, I don't know how many years now that you don't really need film school anymore because you can learn so much online than apply it in the real world that it's not always the best investment. Is something like that going to happen with AI where perhaps the universities can't do it as well as the, the constantly updated online courses can? Well, Scott, you've, you've taught before, right? You've taught video editing. I have. Okay. So you you know that everyone learns differently, right? For yep. me, I need structured learning. I I will be squirrel and I will I will lose my attention if I don't have a structured curricula that makes sense in a logical progression, I'm not going to have an easy time. Where there are yeah. some people who are like I just get it. Right? I get it by just reading a book or just watching a video. So I believe that when you have a structured course with people who are experienced educators, that should be a better way of learning and getting uh, getting educated. But that's not for everyone. So I don't yeah. think there's a right answer to your question. Some people just learn differently. Yeah. And I also think that I don't think that AI is discrete from any other thing that one would be learning, right? I think every industry is moving in a different direction, AI as a tool, uh, in the same way as, I, you know, I think if you think back and you think about, oh, everybody needs to learn how to use a computer so that we can all be into computers when computers came out, you know, personal computing. But computers are just a part of every job now. Computers are a part oh, of- Oh, yeah, it's a right? great point. And so I think when you do a good film school, you learn how to use a computer. For the, in yep. the relevant way to a film school. You don't do a separate computer science course on top of your film school course, right? So I think the same thing will go for generative AI and AI in general. Again, we need to be careful about how we speak about these things. AI in general has been around a long time. It's definitely embedded in everything we do, everything. We don't even see it. Generative AI is the more new thing. It's been around for now about five years. Um, it's moving very fast. And the reason why it's moving fast now is because, again, technology has caught up with the ideas and the theories, the math, essentially. Technology mm. has enabled it mm -hmm. to now be real. A lot of these things, the math is invented. I mean, what we have now, this was invented in the 1980s. Generative AI, what we have today, is was, was invented in the 80s by Jeffrey Hinton and... Uh, but he couldn't make it actually happen or prove it out because the computers were not power enough, powerful enough. And My Atari 2600 would not do generative well, AI. Well, also because the internet also enabled, the maturity of the internet enabled big enough data sets 
So there was that as well. So the, we we had, you know, so that's why it's a big thing today and moved so fast because suddenly now we can. But as I, as I was saying, you know, it's going to be so embedded into everything that we do that learning AI, I don't think is that important per se. I think learning the application of it within the thing that is relevant to mm-hmm. you and understanding how it how those tools can be best used and applied in the same way as you want to understand how to better make use of the tools you have your computer. You only want to know enough about your computer to know how to optimize it for your video editing, Scott, right? Yeah. So I think that's really, I don't think anyone needs to be taking MIT courses in, in machine learning right now uh, so they can be a, a better video producer or, or, or film filmmaker necessarily. Uh, that's just my, my, my little two cents on that. Yeah, it sounds like uh, companies or, or services that can apply AI to a specific niche of a certain size is going to have, you know, a nice advantage. It's something as simple as like, I don't know, like, uh, you know, if you're a chef, then, you know, perhaps I don't know how AI applies to cooking, but I'm sure someone can figure it out. And um, and that that doing it in that sort of weird niche may actually be a really cool, uh, a cool thing. Yeah. Is there anything in like next year that we see, uh, you know, or do we just like, at the end of 2024, let's look back and see what that crazy year is like. There's a couple of things we should look for next year. One of them is that companies are finally going to wake up and realize they can't just uh, use the APIs for open AI and say, I have a new tool, right? There were companies that said, look, you now have your own personal JetGBT to look at your own PDFs. Great. That was a business model for three months and then open AI unveiled it for pennies on the dollar and you no longer need that company. So mm-hmm. there's got to be companies that are doing something unique with it and not relying on the heavy, heavy lifting being done by someone else. I think we're also going to see, in fact, there was a great article this morning about how the flash memory inside iPhones might be great for running LLMs or large language models. The biggest thing we've had to deal with is that running AI models is very difficult on consumer hardware or even heavy gaming systems. There just isn't enough memory, isn't enough horsepower. But uh, next year, I believe we're going to continue to see ways that we can run lower powered or excuse me, larger models on less powerful hardware. We're also going to see almost like a marketplace, (laughs) not to piggyback off uh, Estrada uh, that we had on the show a couple (laughs) months ago, but tailor-made models. Instead of having a model that understands a little bit about everything, give me a model that understands every single bit about Python. Well, give me one that understands every single thing about DaVinci Resolve. So I can use these models Mm, for each individual task as opposed to using a catch-all and hoping that it got enough. I like it. I, I will like also it. just uh, also say that, and as I'm normally a tech optimist, uh, I would I will actually go the other direction. I will say that next year I think we have um, we there's going to be an election in the US. Um, oh my gosh! And I if, and there was already. <sighs> um, you know, there are already folks looking at using AI to give personalized news, all kinds of things going on. I, I think that we will finally start seeing some of the more nefarious uses of generative AI come out. And um, But in the tech optimist side of things, I've always, you know, I've always said in terms of what I think the future is, that there's going to be a tipping point where people start having a greater appreciation for the things that are human made. And that may well be it. I think we may see the tipping point of fake news, hacking, and AI-enabled, all kinds of things that are nefarious. And people might start uh, kind of having putting greater value on things that are clearly human-made 
things that are clearly bespoke and truly creative and truly real and and can be trusted. So I, I don't know. I think there might that tipping point might happen uh, because it might be pushed because of the political landscape in in, in 2024. We'll see. Yeah, we get people uh, spin vinyl and still shoot, you know, a resurgence of shooting actual film in their still cameras. So, uh, you well, know, we've seen that. We've seen that yeah, as, yeah. as the beginning it of something. Here too. Yeah, I think the tipping point, I've always said the tipping point is when this stuff starts to really impact the middle class. Um, yeah, and, you know, I think it, it, it's been impacting the fringes. It's starting to really come into the homes of people who wouldn't ordinarily take notice. And yep. that's, I think, the point where we're going to start seeing the pendulum swing a little bit the other way. That's my little my little prediction for, for next year. Wait, speaking of the middle class, another thing that happened this year, and this goes back to something we were having a little discussion about before we started recording. If you remember, if you had purchased Discovery digital television shows on your PlayStation, you woke up one morning and those things were gone. These These shows that you had purchased, you bought them thinking they were yours, and suddenly they weren't there anymore. And this is not the first time this has happened, that you purchase digital media that is then just taken away. I think it's a travesty and the company should go down. Convince <laughs> me I'm wrong. Yeah. Did you read the terms and conditions? What terms and conditions? Who reads terms and conditions? Are there so, terms and conditions when you purchase a... Did, there there's there's a piece of paper in my, uh, I bought a, uh, a plug, you plug into the wall, like that's Alexa connected. I bought a plug and I took this little plug out of the box and there's this little printed 12 page booklet. That's the terms and conditions. Look, there's I a digital the equivalent is, of that. I think the thing is that in the digital world, again, there is, there are hosting platforms and there are media on that. What you are buying is essentially the right to access that media on that hosting platform. But if that hosting platform doesn't have that on there anymore, doesn't own that media, they can't sell, they can't provide that to you anymore. So, you know, I think there's something in the digital world that people are starting to understand. There's a certain amount of impermanence. You know, again, it's all in the terms and conditions. I always will argue, read the terms and conditions. But I think people are starting to understand. Do you read the terms and conditions, Katie? For the most part, yeah. Especially if it's something where I'm questioning uh, that there might be something a little different there. I actually do often read the terms and conditions because there's a lot of privacy uh, stuff in there. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And so I do tend to kind of look through some of that stuff. There's a lot of boilerplate stuff that I'm reasonably familiar with. So I can skim through that, but you always can find where there is the stuff of, in terms of what the limitations on what you're buying. If I'm spending $12.99, I'm not that concerned, right? I'm probably only going to it's probably only going to be cool until the next cooler thing comes along anyway, right? People are used to, you buy a game, you buy a game, but like three years later, that game's kind of obsolete anyway. So people kind of understand that, I think, in the digital world a little bit better, um, that there is a planned obsolescence to everything that we purchase these days. I mean, I'm not mad about my first iPhone no longer working, right? I mean, that's But that was a physical product too. that you sure. bought and you still have. I mean, sure. sometimes when you, like you'll, you'll, you'll buy something digitally, or you, you know, and you have to scroll down through and you have mm -hmm. to, you can't go to the next screen until you li at least scroll through everything and hit the accept button. Mm -hmm. But if you're on like the iTunes store or just the mm -hmm. random thing where they're like, I'm going to buy this movie, like you don't even have that thing you've got to scroll through to accept. Okay, but I guess but again, when you sign up for the service, sure. there's your terms and conditions mm -hmm. right there. Can I, can I argue again that, again, possession being nine-tenths of the law, there is a big difference between digital media and physical media. And again, digital media, unless you download it, you don't have it. 
but someone else still has it, right? The platform hosting it actually has it. And what you are buying for the much smaller amount of money, typically, to actually owning that piece of physical media, because they can sell the same thing to millions of people, right? And so essentially, they are selling you the right to access that thing. I, I would say if, if you had a, a pizza place down the street and you bought a card that gave you a lifetime supply of garlic knots, and one day that pizza place went out of business, you're not going to be chasing the owner down for my garlic knots, right? And then that's so that, different. It's than not different. a movie from iTunes. When you buy it, you got a rent button and a buy button. There's a, there's a reasonable expectation of the consumer to think that if I bought that, I, I always agree. have. They don't I even. Agree. They don't, just, I, they don't I, I agree it, that like, the language. Hey, until we sell this rights sure. to this film elsewhere, you've you've bought it. They don't but, even say anything like that. This way as well, Scott. If you're trying to understand whether you actually own something or not, if you bought that thing on iTunes, would you then sell it onto someone else? Uh, no. Then you don't truly believe you own it. Well, I, that's where I think the digital owning of something is different than the physical owning. Which is of what something. I'm telling you right now: the digital owning of something is physical. Oh, Katie physical wraps owning. it back around. And Scott, <laughs> here, here'd be my other question: Why wouldn't you buy a physical copy of it? Don't you look at it as like good, better, best? I'm going to rent it. I'm going to have access to it while the getting's good. Well, and then there's going to be, I have it in my, and you got to pry it for my cold dead hands. I, I think that's kind of where it goes back to like looking at, again, society in general. Like the, those of us that are kind of in and around this space kind of realize that, you know what, when I bought that digital movie, I really don't own it. Own it. But right. so many people out there think they, they do own it. And that's where I, I mentioned this when we were just chatting beforehand. I think this is like where it's ripe for some kind of clash election lawsuit where even though think the terms and conditions say that, there's still a, you know, there's a reasonable expectation. What can you get a judge and a jury to agree with? If there's a reasonable expectation of thinking they should have always had access to it, you know, perhaps there's a, perhaps there's a case there. But Yeah, I, I think this stuff is shifting. I, I think that, that's true. That, I think that this is shifting. I think there are those of us in a generation where we're used to owning physical things. Um, our understanding of the buy button means something different. There are folks who have grown up in the digital world and their idea of the buy button is impermanent in the digital world and even in the physical world we now that there is we know that there is planned obsolescence to everything that we buy so i think we understand that we can possess it for a period of time until it no longer is there now i will also say that this is also something where folks have tried to really disrupt that market a little bit like alluvio um you know partnering with warner brothers to nftis some of these things with the dvd extras essentially they've been doing that and i think that's a very very interesting model because again there, you, there is a contract that exists when you buy a thing as an NFT that says you now own this for a period of time. There is only one person that can have this or there are 300 people that can have this and they can have this for a period of time. So I think that's the thing with the, uh, I always you know, NFTs for good, but I think it's that um, idea of bringing something back, but also making sure that people are a little bit more aware of what they're actually getting into and what they're paying for. And again, they might be paying slightly less, but that's because they're going to get it for a certain amount of time. And that's what, what smart contracts are quite good that way. Man, my mother-in-law owning an NFT of her favorite show. When that when that day happens, 
it's going to be a glorious thing. It's funny we talked about vinyl and film. Did you see where, uh, and talking about this whole thing of buying something digital, was it the 4K Blu-ray of Oppenheimer when that when that came out? Like stores could not keep those in stock. They were such a hot item. And I think, you know, perhaps people realize, once again, you know what, if I want a copy of my favorite movie, the way to do it is to get that physical that physical disc and um and you know there yeah you go. I think that well, is that understanding again of permanence object permanence uh, versus digital permanence and um and people are starting to understand that that these things move around they're not going to be on Netflix forever or or the servers and I think a lot of people also don't think about the other side of the business of that when people complain that their favorite show is no longer on Netflix they aren't thinking about the business side of that decision it's not about necessarily about just Netflix's side of things, uh, but that's also how artists get paid. That's that's where the residuals happen. You can keep selling your content to different services. That's when that's part of the windowing sort of theory of, of how we yeah. sell our media. We that's don't just point. sell it once. You don't sell it once. You sell it once to Netflix and then you can sell it again. You sell it to Netflix for a period of time. Then you can sell it to Netflix again, or you can sell it to HBO, or you can sell it to someone else. And so it's actually important to understand that that is also how folks get residuals. So, you know, there's, there is the other side of that. Speaking of selling, Nah. One thing from the previous year was um, one of our favorite companies that we, we we talk about and work in a lot is Adobe. And Adobe uh, put out a bid to buy Figma. Now, I didn't know what Figma was when this started going down several months ago. Can so- someone explain what is Figma? Do you guys, either of you use Figma? I don't use Figma. Uh, I'm a, I'm aware of it. A lot of uh, folks that uh, I've worked with who are UX designers are using Figma to do mock-ups of interfaces, of designs, how the application may work from a graphical perspective. And as you pointed out, Adobe put in a bid to buy them. A big bid. And, and it's, it's all Figma was an all-online service, unlike Adobe products, which you subscribe to, but then download the application and run locally perhaps saving yourself to the cloud. But Figma, I think, was it was an all online-based right. interface design tool, right? And Adobe had their own interface design tool, which I did not. I, I had seen this app to download called uh, Disney XD, um, called Adobe XD. And I guess that was not, product did not go so well, maybe. So that's why they put in this bid to buy Figma. Um, the EU, I believe, was really trying to block it. And just this week, or last week, depending on when you hear this, Adobe backed out of that deal to buy Figma. I Yes, uh, the regulatory body basically said this would be a case of antitrust. And I think actually this is a blessing in disguise. You know, I, I don't know exact dates, obviously, mergers and acquisitions. You know, you don't always hear what dates people started talking about things. But my guess is that the discussions between Figma and Adobe started a couple of years ago, right before AI really uh, hit mainstream at the end of last year. I'm willing to bet that Adobe is probably saying, you know what, we're going to be able to do with AI, our own AI, via prompting, Uh, via taking a picture of something, via someone drawing it on a bar napkin and taking a picture and saying, make this into a mock-up. They may not need to spend tens of billions of dollars to do that. They can do it all homegrown. Look, Adobe's become a leader in AI and generative AI in that time. And who, who knew? Who knew Adobe would be one of the big ones? Um, and I think, yeah, you're right. I don't think they need Figma anymore. They, they, they are willing to pay out a billion dollars to back out of that deal 
So that's how much they think that they actually, they must think that they've got more than a billion dollars worth of something. Perhaps the stink the EU put up was just an easy excuse to back out. And uh, I like, I like your theory there, Michael, that, uh, I think it may be interesting for another player, especially if Microsoft is going to make a, a larger play in the creative space where they've been, you know, uh, not as prevalent, shall we say, in the past few years. I think that may be a good angle for them. But I think if anyone's looking at this, I think they should keep in mind uh, what to keep, what Kitty said. Adobe's got the firepower, and I don't think Figma would have netted them as many returns as just doing it uh, in-house at this point. Yeah, I think just the introduction this year of generative feel in Photoshop for Adobe was just, it like just blew people's minds with what it could do. You know, we'd seen the generative stuff before, but putting it into that, you know, that ubiquitous tool that everybody knows how to use well as just like a menu option and then seeing what it could do. You know, even when it did bad stuff, it was kind of like, this is, it's just amazing that this even exists in my, this thing I've used for, you know, decades. So it was, um, Scott, have you tried taking a picture and then telling AI what to do with it? Or uh, what I've done many times is draw a mock-up, a wireframe of something, and write play, let's say, or maybe we'd put buy on there for you, Scott. And then I draw up another (laughs) wireframe and I say, when the user clicks buy, go to this page or this other image. It understands that. I've taken pictures of, uh, I've been working on some code and there, it would enter in a space somewhere and I'd take a picture of that extra space in the rendered uh, rendered image and say, you're putting in an extra space in here, find why you're doing it and fix that. And it fixes it in the background. And if that's where we are 14, wow, no. 15 months after, again, AI, no, I keep harping on this today, but after AI hit mainstream, it's going to eat Figma's lunch. <laughs> Wow. No, that's pretty good. I have not done anything like that. Um, it's mainly just goofing off, putting crazy things onto tables. And the thing where you could like, you could extend the background where you could take a small photo and, and like, and blow it and like, have it just generate what it thinks is around it was just like, that was one of those like, you know, jaw dropping moments when someone figured that out and then everybody was doing it and you tried it yourself. And like, it's just, it's just, it's pretty mind blowing. Hey, they, if you um, want to know what I, the other thing about next year, what I think we're going to start seeing is we're actually going to start seeing, I think probably it's a year away. So at the end of next year is going to be half decent uh, video, generative video. It's simple and it's just yeah. like a push because, on a thing with some how it does it. Right. So, yeah. so right now, essentially, the methodology around it is still, it's not context, doesn't have any contextual understanding. So it literally is like an old animation. It's generating an individual frame for every single one and then putting them all together essentially. So that's why it's all wobbly and weird. There isn't that contextual understanding, motion estimation. Um, you know, it's it's not there, what we call temporal consistency. And that's the thing that the nerds are trying to crack, I think, this year. That's what the nerds are really trying to crack. So I You say don't that so lovingly. I, I do because I, I, <laughs> I'm a nerd. I'm working with my nerds. That's what we're going to be seeing. I think it's a year off. I think we haven't yet seen the right approach. I think we're started, people are starting to look at motion estimation and motion prediction. But I think in a year's time, we're going to have something and we're going to start seeing the first goes at some shorts created with AI. They're probably not going to be that good, but I think what we're seeing today is a joke. And what we're going to see in a year's time is going to be okay. Baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah, for sure. 
we always uh, overestimate the technology, don't we? That's right. Speaking of baby steps, uh, let's pivot here to something that is important to uh, a lot of us in the post-production industry, and that is how much money we can make. Because if you start out as an assistant, it's baby steps to sort of move up into making more money. Uh, and not that the world is all about money, but, you know, sometimes it feels like the world is all about money. Can you tell us about um, what, do you, what kind of tease can you give us on the, uh, the post-production survey that recently, recently closed, which is a big part of every year? Absolutely. So I can certainly give you some really good summaries of who was working in post this year and, and how people got paid and what it all looked like. I've been crunching numbers in my spare time since the survey closed. Uh, Did the, AI help you crunch the numbers? No. In fact, Michael asked me that. And to be honest, this is my eighth year doing this. It's in my head far more efficiently than it's anywhere else, I think, right <laughs> now. And a lot of it really is I actually sit there and I actually look at it quite hard. I analyze it all and I find it fascinating. So it's one of those things. I don't want AI to do that for me. I, I actually want to know. I want to be able to speak to it. I can tell you that uh, in terms of who responded, we had 2,603 valid responses. There were a bunch of you know, incomplete ones and weird ones and whatever else and mistakes made. So it got, goes down to 2306. How did that um, compare to previous years? Because I know at um, one point near the end, we did a real push to try we to- We did. It, it was, it was uh, pretty good. It was definitely okay. better than last year. It's not our highest, but it, it's a good number of responses. Anything over 2,000, I feel confident that we've got a good overview. And the most important thing is that we actually get- a good distribution across the industry, that we don't have 2,000 editors and 306 producers. You know, like mm -hmm. it has to be really, you know, a really good distribution. So it can be a smaller number or a higher number as long as the distribution is, is good. So we actually got a really good distribution this year, which was awesome. It was still uh, just slightly over 50% came from editorial, which includes all, you know, the whole editorial department, but that probably does actually align with the post industry. I think most, a lot of, I think probably the most, you know, around half or just over half of folks who work in post work in the editorial department. So yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a pretty good one. Uh, in terms of the type of content, that was a change that did coincide with some disruptions in the industry um, this year. So what folks were working on in the month of November was actually top, the top was unscripted episodic. And that, again, it make, makes sense because a lot of things were shut down. Mm -hmm. um, normally, we actually had scripted episodic is for most years. It's actually what mo more people, there's more of that usually. And then we've got some, you know, then we tend to have sort of indie films and, you know, unscripted is usually around sort of the third or fourth thing. Scripted episodic was the third down. And then we're talking about features, it's way down. So yeah, and unscripted and corporate or branded content were the top two things that were being worked on in November. Um, do you, Katie, do you feel that a lot of that's because of, you said November, but how much of this <laughs> is also done when did the strike? Because if you're scripted, you yeah. a good chance you're in your union. If you're unscripted, good chance you weren't union. That's right. And I think that that's probably, I think we can't say that anything is because of anything here. Um, but we can certainly say that it coincides. Um, I think we can, we can infer what we want to infer from that. I, I certainly can't say this is a cause and effect, but I can say that there is a, co that it coincides. And I think there's a lot of things that we can, that I've seen this year that coincide with the strikes in terms of potentially being an impact of the strike. I can also tell you something very interesting is that our equality measures, our various equality measures were decreased this year 
from our respondents. Hmm. That goes for representation, that goes for pay in general. We've gone backwards. Now, I can tell you something that we saw the same thing happen during the pandemic for, to a much more dramatic degree. And so, and what was actually um, found globally across the entire workforce during the pandemic was that when there were mass layoffs, when there were cuts, that those who were sort of historically disadvantaged were more severely disadvantaged when there were austerity measures, shutdowns and, and layoffs. So we saw that also in our industry during the pandemic, and we saw it start to come back to normal. And then uh, then the second half of this year, we saw to a smaller extent, because not every part of our industry was impacted by the strikes, but we did see to, to that, we saw a trend towards that a little bit of that same effect. So it appears that maybe the strikes meant that with a lot of folks getting laid off, shows shutting down and a lot of impacts, it appears that potentially um, historically excluded groups were impacted more heavily. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, and, and it's just, you know, I think the, the actual balance of who exists in the industry hasn't changed, but who's getting paid, who's got the jobs, how, you know, things like that, how they're getting paid, that sort of thing is, is really is where we're impacted. And we're seeing a lot of things going backwards, right? That was, you know, unfortunate. Let's see. We also, for the first time, um, actually asked people about their disability status. We've never, I've never done that before in the eight years. And so this year we found that um, 6% of our industry, of the respondents representing our industry, live with a disability. 2% require workplace accommodations for their disability. So more sort of visible disabilities. Um, and it's interesting because of the total U.S. labor force in 2023, disabled folks make up 22% of the total U.S. labor force. So wow. actually we have a very small representation in post-production of folks with disabilities. And if you dig into the data, there's more about what kind of disability folks have. But again, the other thing that uh, came out of this data is that people with disabilities made 25% less than their colleagues. So it was a pretty big pay gap there. I always find it really amazing to see these pay gaps come out of the data because nobody knows how they compare to others. Nobody's trying to make a point of anything. It's literally just people telling you this is this is my situation. And when you get enough people, you see trends and we see those things. And it's always, always amazes me when I do the math and there it is. It's right there. It's real. And and it's you know crazy. So the gender pay gap, the binary gender pay gap um, in 2023 was 18.5% which is higher than the nationwide across all industries, the, the Department of Labor pay gap, uh, which was 16, and higher than last year, which was 15%. So, mm. and uh, non-binary and gender non-conforming uh, folks in post actually were paid 30% uh, less wow. on average. So that was interesting. It's all very, very sad. Uh, but I can tell you some other things that are interesting when we break it down. Again, so that was also coinciding with effects. So it actually lines up around about, uh, pay gap lines up around about with 2021. 2020, all hell broke loose and the pay gap just shot to craziness, right? But 2021, there was the, those impacts were still there. And that's about what we're seeing in 
all of the impacts in terms of employment, pay gaps, all of these things, we're seeing it about the same as 2021. So around where things, you know, it wasn't the full impacts that was impacting everybody everywhere like it was with the pandemic, but we know that there were impacts in the major cities where most people in post work. So more than 50% work in the major hubs. So it kind of makes sense that 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 sort of that's what those impacts look like. Katie, in terms of of uh, yeah. pay, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the inequality portion aside, were there any bright notes such as overall everyone was paid five percent more, beating inflation? Or I mean, I was there anything like that, that yet? Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I would actually guess that it's probably down. I'm not there yet. Um, sorry. If you had AI crunching the numbers for, just kidding. Now, now. <laughs> um, the other thing I will say, though, is that a similar thing happened with a pandemic where location didn't affect your pay so much suddenly, right? So pre-pandemic, whether you lived in a major hub or not, there was a pay gap there. So in 2019, if you lived outside of New York or Los Angeles, you were paid about 12% less. In 2020, that went to 4%. Yeah. So suddenly, wow. Yeah. Right, because it mm. suddenly think about it. People moved out of the cities. They kept the jobs. It didn't really matter anymore, mm-hmm. and it proved we proved that it didn't really matter. Now in twenty twenty two, kind of came back to mattering again. Uh, we went back to the same as about twenty eighteen, so well, up around that ten percent. And in twenty twenty three, it came back down. And again, the correlation with all of the impacts and disruptions may suggest, and when you do break it down a little bit, you do see it a little bit, that how location affects pay for different groups was quite interesting this year. Because again, those who really rely on the big work of the major cities uh, kind of keep up that pay gap. The ones that, again, you know, can keep working if they're not in the big union towns, the big studio towns, actually kind of benefited, right? So the pay gap changed. Where people were taking furloughs and pay cuts in the major cities, they weren't necessarily outside of that. And so we actually saw that pay gap close for some groups more than others, for sure. And interestingly, what I did notice is that for post-producers at all levels, so everyone from coordinators all the way up to, you know, post-supervisors, Georgia was a big one. Because Georgia in Georgia, people were paid about the same as they were in Los Angeles, uh, which really skewed the location pay gap data a little bit towards in favor of working outside those two hubs. Because in those two hubs, folks weren't working. They were in Georgia, sure, but they probably weren't working as much either. But it was, you know, it was just interesting. Like if we just sort of thinking about how that all impacts things, I think it almost kind of sways things a little bit because Georgia's become a big hub uh, for certain things. So I don't know. It was very interesting to me. (laughs) So um, you got anything else you want to know? I mean, I can tell you, you know, how much folks... Uh, on average, get paid to do different things if if that's of interest yeah. to you. Yeah, and uh, but before you say that, I will yeah. echo Scott's sentiment. As much as I think you should know something uh, and understand it and eat, sleep, and breathe it, mm-hmm. I think now that you uh, or when you're done with this analysis, you will then give it to AI and see if AI can come out with any other correlations. What are their causations? <laughs> I sure. you know is, but I'd love to. I'd love to to hear that. But yes, let's let's hear how much we should be making. Okay. So what do you want to know? Editors? Uh, yeah, let's let's yes. let's go for uh in my neck of the woods. Let's talk about editors in California. 
Okay. Well, I can actually, let me break that all the way down to, do you want to, should we break it down to Los Angeles? Sure. Sure. All right. So I'm going to go through and do what many, many people I think listening has probably have probably done many, many times is they've gone onto the actual spreadsheet and I'm going in there now and I'm clicking on editors in Los Angeles, scroll down to Los Angeles. Uh, do you want to know what kind of content or anything like that? Just hit me, hit me. I, uh, <laughs> what, right, let's just go editors in Los Angeles for an average hourly rate. And again, this is the average. This includes the lowest and the highest. The average is $89 an hour. So the highest uh, hourly rate we see is 500 actually 650 um, and again, I looked at that one because I thought it was a little crazy, uh, but it's not. It is actually someone who has a lot of experience and is doing very, looks like they, they, are, they do a lot of high-end work, very high-end work. So there are some 650s, some 500s, uh, but mostly we're looking, if you want to kind of look at the, the middle, you're looking around the 70s, 80s, and then there's loads all the way down at the bottom, you know, 1375. So that tracks the last professional yeah. editor I hired uh, was $100 an hour. There you go. And I and I thought, wow, that's that's a that's a, that's more than I expected. Yeah. Uh, not that you're not worth it. Please don't get me wrong in that, but uh, not being in that realm, I mm-hmm. thought the going rates were a little bit lower than that. So that's very interesting. Yeah. So that's editors in LA. <laughs> well, I think that's a good rate. They should be. They, uh, yeah. they, they, they should be at that. As always, um, colorists make the most. That's just always been. But that's come down, I bet, hasn't it? Since more people yeah. are doing color. Yeah, we have seen that for sure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we can talk about this. We can keep going, but Katie, I don't want you to spill all of the beans before you actually release the full-on report. Uh, she's which... counting the beans. She's not. <laughs> yeah, I am. She's counting the beans. When will? Uh, when do you anticipate the full? Um, <laughs> Report coming out, and do you have to spend your whole Christmas working on it? Because we want you to have a break, not just crunching spreadsheet data. Right. I, I honestly, what I do is when I have a spare hour, I I get into it and I crunch it. I actually a lot of it is just is doing that filtering that spread. That's why I don't release this full the full data until later because I want to be able to play around with it and everyone else plays around with it and it messes it all up. So I sit there and I filter, filter, filter. I get all of this really, really detailed information. And there's all these little tabs that I put together with all of, with actually breaking down a lot of it. So you can see how I worked it all out. You can see how much, you know, how much people are making. It, it really is quite, you know, <laughs> um, it's a labor of love. It really it is. is a labor of love um, and compare it to other years as well so that we have all of that. So, I mean, my, observations are in one place, you know, are sort of there in the report, but it's all there. And, and I'm sitting there doing, sit there, do, it, do a lot, um, do a lot of work. And so a lot of it is these other tabs where I'm just making charts. I'm breaking it down to lots of different charts. And I know Michael's probably looking at me and going, that is such a waste of time. Um, <laughs> but like I, said, well, I, I, I think we're going. grateful that you do it and have done it for so long. I mean, you're eight years yeah. into it. Is there a chance of passing the torch next year or uh, getting a staff or just letting letting AI handle it all? I don't know. What... Look, every year I will reassess, but I enjoy doing it. I think it's an important service um, that I give to the community. And I think if no one else is doing it, someone's got to. So I'll keep doing it until someone else does. One of the great pieces of advice uh, I got uh, when I was very young in the industry and and still was on the more creative end as a sound editor, the suggestion was the greats give back. 
and kind of mentioned saying that you're not great unless you give back, right? It wasn't, hey, you're great. Now you give back. It was kind of to become great, you need to give back. And uh, I can't commend you enough for doing this, uh, Katie. This is a, a Herculean effort. Uh, and thank you so much for doing this for now eight years. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, like Michael, you you do five things and you've done a lot of stuff for and you're not being paid directly for them over many years in this industry, too. So it's kind of, you know, I think we do it because we love it. We do it because it is mm -hmm. fun, it's fun to give back. Um, you know, I don't we wouldn't spend the time on it if we didn't feel there was value that, that we were adding. You know, whether we're adding any or not, I don't know, but at least we think we are, look, which is. Look, this this data is so important because people use it. And it's funny, everyone, everyone asks me what about, you know, tools they're building and technology they're building, you know, what is the measure of success of this? And it's not that it works, it's that people use it. And the yeah. same goes with this. The reason why I keep doing it is because on average, every year I can see, because on my own, it sits on my Google Drive, and every single day of the year, at least one person accesses that information. And oh, they use cool. it, and they use it. They use it to get themselves a better deal, to understand what they should be getting paid, and people in the DEI space use it to understand where they need to put their energy. I mean, I think it's so important to understand um, where we can do better and, and, and just all of that kind of stuff. When people are hiring, you can really see, do I, you know, where are the gaps? You know, all of these things. You know, I was able to even let people know where they can find more colorists who are people of color, for example. Well, if you actually look at the data, you can see they exist, just not in the high-end feature film space as much, mm. right? But there are some very experienced colorists, lots and lots of them, in commercials and in unscripted and in documentaries. And so, again, it it helps us understand how to actually do better. It's really, you know, it, though the data can be used for so many things, and that's why I'm so passionate about just collecting it and then making it known that it's there so people can use it. Awesome. Um, so I think we should look at our one coolest thing as the one coolest thing of the year. We don't need to go into it because we've gone into it. What do you think? Sure. I'm game. All right. Uh, what's yours, Scott? So my one coolest thing has to, it kind of goes back to AI, but it's not a specific product, but just um, something that has been a big benefit to me this year. And that has been the uh, text-based editing in my NLEs. We've got mm -hmm. it in Premiere. Premiere, I would say, is probably the um, the the pioneer of it and has done it best so far. Resolve added it, continues to be updated. Avid's kind of added it by letting us do um, script sync sort of trans um, transcription directly you know, without having to go to the cloud. And there's some implementations of it. You can do it in um, Final Cut by some third parties. But this has been a thing for years now. We've been able to transcribe in the cloud, do some kind of editing from that text and get that back into the NLE. But having it in the NLE itself removes a friction point that made it difficult for people to use outside of the NLE. I would often not do it because having to go to a web service or having to go to another app and XML back in and deal with the problems with that sometimes would just wasn't worth the effort. Um, so having it right there in a panel, right as I'm working, has just it's made it's been a huge time saver. I, I so, agree. I think text based editing is is a huge one for this year. I think that's definitely one of my coolest things as well. Yeah, because it's just you know it, it removes some of the monotony of like having to listen sure. over and then having to you know double triple time things. You can just quickly skim it and read it. So I I, I really think that's my favorite of the year. The one thing missing that they haven't done yet is I could see Adobe 
figuring out a way to say, look, you've transcribed this. It's now in a text document in the creative cloud somewhere. Let another person access that text document, build a script, and bring that in to back into Premiere. That's the thing that the online services still have is that collaboration feature with the text that's generated. Once we get that, then we are all set. But um, as far as just the basics of it, text-based editing has been my one coolest thing of the year, bar none. Nice. That's a good one. Michael? Well, it would have been really easy to choose uh, AI, and I'm not uh, crapping on your uh, your uh, <laughs> your one cool thing there, Scott. But AI helps do it. It does. It does. One of the things that we saw during the pandemic is that we fell victim to the lowest common denominator. And what I mean by that is we were viewing video across long distances and we either had hundreds or thousands of dollars to throw away, not throw away, but spend per month on an enterprise solution. Or we said, we'll deal with Zoom or deal with blue jeans for a short, for a hot minute. Uh, and what we realized is that you, you and uh, all everyone here on this call knows that uh, video, the video quality sucks when you're using things like Zoom. You don't get decent color fidelity. There's no AV sync. Frame rate is going to be variable, and there hasn't been a way to make that available to the casual or individual freelancer pro out there. And a company called Looper.io, L-O-U-P-E-R.io, popped up a year or so ago, and they bring affordable streaming to your web browser from your NLE. For I think starting, uh, I think they have a free plan, and it's uh, uh, under a hundred bucks uh, for a very robust plan. I think bringing that to the masses, where you no longer have to settle for horrible video when we all work in the video world, mm -hmm. uh, is fantastic. So my shout out is to Alex uh, and the rest of the team over at Looper.io. That's cool. Mine. Okay, so mine are both from Japan. <laughs> Um, it's the Japanese paper films. I mean, explain explain that to me. I think I, I remember seeing a blurb about that, but explain that for everybody. The Japanese paper well, I think films. That was your one cool thing. That was my uh, one early, cool thing back earlier, earlier in the year. this yeah. year. Yeah, you loved like, it. It was so so cool. So that definitely is is one of mine. That they there was a, a short period of time, I think in the 1940s, where in Japan they were making films out of out of rice paper. It was in the 1930s. There's a team now actually. Uh, preserving them and digitizing them. It's very, very cool project. I'll put the link to the project in the in the show notes. It's pretty neat. For me, it just blew my mind because I didn't know it was a technology that had ex ever existed. And so for me, that was just so cool. I was obsessed, at, like digging deep into it for a while. And that was pretty cool. And my other coolest thing. Wait, again, wait, hang the, on. Before yes. you go to your other, can I give you props for your coolest thing being not something we use in work, something for entertainment, something for enjoyment, something for artistic pleasure? Of course, it's a cool thing. That's 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 what a cool thing should be, uh, especially with the coolest thing of the year. Not text-based editing, not Looper, because that's crap we work in all the time, but something totally outside the realm. I, I don't have it. a that's life outside. This is all I've got, Scott. Yeah, I know. Sh I shut it. Michael, stop it. Don't say that. You don't want to say it out loud. Well, my other cool thing was AI for good. Uh, it was NHK's automatic sign language translation. Uh, we saw that at IBC. It blew me away. It was so cool. It was such a cool application of so many different technologies, um, but including machine learning, AI, generative AI, and real time, <laughs> all together for something non-commercial. 
for something that is really a public service and a public good. It ticked all the boxes for me. It was so clever. It was such a simple workflow, but so clever. And I love that stuff when it's so simple and obvious, but I hadn't thought of it. And I'm like, ah, yes, that's so great. And that it's doing good for the world. It's, it was very, very cool. Essentially, they have a system whereby for emergency broadcasts, there's usually a bulletin that comes in. It's text space, and that is translated into sign language. Then in machine learning, it is taken, the, they take the grammar and the format and the transitions of sign language to make it actually work because sign language and every sign language language has its own grammatical forms that is not like spoken language. And the transitions between signs, of course, have to be natural. So they have all of this database of people doing sign language to understand that. So the first thing is to translate into sign language. The second thing is to then take that through machine learning to make it natural. And then it is put into a metahuman and real-time rendered to uh, have a person doing sign language to translate that bulletin. It was incredible. It was so cool. And they were able to switch between languages and sign language languages and all of that. It was just, it was so cool. And there were so many great applications to it. But the fact that they even thought about the first application being to make sure that everybody gets the information they need. Of course, that is... That's awesome. Really cool. Yeah. You know what? We just had um, a few weeks ago, uh, tornadoes come through uh, Middle mm-hmm. Tennessee, and there were six people north of Nashville killed. And anytime you have a natural disaster, especially tornadoes that move so fast, there's always people that don't get the message for whatever reason. Yeah. And this is one of those applications where something like that could save life. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Super sure. cool stuff. So that's mine. That was a good one. Those are uh, yeah. Well, friends, uh, I believe this will wrap up 2023 for us here. We want to thank everybody who's been listening this year. We get a lot of good um, downloads and listens and a lot of good feedback. And we appreciate we appreciate everybody who takes the time to listen. And we're always happy to um, have feedback and have debates and uh, tell us that we're wrong or we're right or whatever. Katie, Michael, wish you much good times on the holidays, safe travels and whatnot. And yeah, you know what? We'll, uh, we'll pick this back up uh, in 2024. See you next year. Have great holidays, everyone.